0: I don't know about you guys, but after singing with you of the glory of Christ and his gospel, I'm ready to either run through a brick wall or cry or maybe both at the same time. But we actually get to look at God's word now. I get to preach, which is the next best thing. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 8 this morning. So we continue our study through Luke's gospel. And I'm going to bow and pray and just ask that God would attend to the preaching of his word, that he would supply power that he would work, that he would speak, and that he would get the glory. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you now so in awe of how you have revealed your glory through your son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. There is power in his name. He rules, he reigns over the creation, over us, over the powers of darkness, over time and eternity. And he deserves all the glory and the worship. I pray that today you'd give us eyes to see him as he really is. That you would stir our hearts to fear him, to trust him, to love him. Lord, may your word be clear today. May it land in our hearts and our minds in such a way that moves us to treasure Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, over the last many years, I don't know when this trend started. Over the last many years, there's been no shortage of Hollywood films that, that picture and portray and, and try to display demonic power, possession, oppression, hauntings, the deception and the evil and the power that, that, that is there. And, and there's something biblical in that, even though they, they get almost all of it wrong. Please don't ever get your theology from a Hollywood film, especially not those horror films that they're always cranking out. But there's a kernel of truth in it, and that's that there is a spiritual realm, which, by the way, is why I find I have a hard time with Christians enjoying those kinds of films because there's something real about it. There really are demons, and they really are powerful and dangerous. So there's a kernel of truth in that, but what those Hollywood films get wrong is that the impact on the viewer is always different than the impact of Scripture. When Scripture describes these demonic encounters, demonic powers and forces, the result is very different than Hollywood films. These Hollywood films leave you fearing the demons in awe of their power, terrified of what they might do or what they have done. But in Scripture, every time we find these descriptions, descriptions of demonic power, we come away not fearing the demons, not in awe of their power and what they can do we're actually left in awe of Jesus Christ. In Luke's gospel, he he writes this book, this whole story for a man whose name is Theophilus. And he writes it in chapter one, verses one through four, so that Theophilus might have certainty about the things he had been taught. This book was written as an organized account to strengthen this man's faith. And there's nothing that strengthens our faith more than seeing Jesus in action. That's what Theophilus needed. That's what we need today. And by the way, that's what the disciples needed, too, in Luke chapter eight. Last week we saw how Jesus stilled a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He calmed the wind and the waves with the power of his authoritative word. And, and the astonished disciples who are standing knee-deep in water inside the boat, as the sea is perfectly calm, they're more afraid at the end of that story than they were when it started. They're no longer fearing the storm. They're now fearing Jesus. They ask, who then is this that he commands even the wind and the water and they obey him? And that's really the key question. And the answer to that question that we saw last week is somewhat implied. Jesus has authority over the created realm, over the wind and the waters because he is the creator. He is God in the flesh. But just in case that answer wasn't clear enough, in our passage today, we're about to get a direct answer to their question. Who then is this? And it's not going to be a very subtle answer either. When Jesus finishes crossing the lake with his disciples, he encounters a man who is possessed by demons. And as the powers of darkness face off with Jesus we find that Jesus has absolute power and authority, not just over the natural physical realm, but also over the spiritual realm. Once again, Jesus, with his word, confronts chaos. He brings order and peace, and he does it by speaking, which reveals his divine authority as the very Son of God. And once again, just like after the calming of the storm, people are left afraid, in awe, wondering at the power and authority of this man, Jesus Christ. What I want to do in our story today is look at three responses that we see to the spiritual authority of Jesus. We're going to see three different responses, and together we'll consider some implications at the end. The first response to the authority of Jesus is in verses 26 through 33. And it's the hateful fear of the demons. The story picks up in verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This setting for this story is important. They're not just on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've, they've gone across to the other side, to a region that did have some Jewish influence, but it's a region that is predominantly Gentile. It's the country of the Gerasenes. Now, in Luke's Gospel, we've seen a number of times that there are sometimes Gentiles that come to Jesus. But this is the first time we see Jesus going to Gentiles. He goes into their territory, and he goes to continue doing the ministry he's been doing, preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God in every city. And he's foreshadowing by doing this as he goes into Gentile territory. He's actually foreshadowing the great commission that he would one day give his disciples. Later on, he would tell These disciples, the guys in the boat with him, that they were to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. But as it often happens in the Gospels, the presence of Jesus leads to conflict. The moment that Jesus sets foot on the shore, there's this immediate confrontation. We see that the man here comes immediately to Jesus as soon as he sets foot out of the boat. You see, Jesus is the representative here of God's kingdom. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And as he steps off the boat into this Gentile region, Jesus is stepping into enemy territory. This is an invasion. And the powers of darkness immediately rise to meet him. I want you to imagine being the disciples here just for a moment. You've had a long night. You thought you were going to die. Perhaps the adrenaline is still sort of lessening in your system. And then all of a sudden, this insane man that some of the other gospel authors describe who would cut himself with with stones and he lived in these tombs, he comes stark naked with scars all over his body, screaming and running straight towards them. And this man is strong enough because of these demons to take them apart. But Jesus doesn't flinch. He's not intimidated. And this man ends up falling at Jesus' feet. And he says that this man has demons. Now, years ago, C.S. Lewis made a very wise observation about demons. He said that there's two errors that we often fall into, and Satan loves it when either one of these happens. The first error is to ignore the fact that Satan and demons exist, to underestimate them. That gives them plenty of cover to do what they want to do. But there's an equal and opposite error, and that's to pay them too much attention, to become fixated on them. To focus on them. And I think it's important in this story that we recognize as bizarre and even in some ways fascinating as this is, the demons are not the main character. Jesus is. And the reason we're given all of this sort of gory detail about this demonic power is so that we can see in contrast to that the power and the glory of Jesus. Luke does describe for us the devastation that these demonic spirits have brought into this man's life. He's described as having no clothes. For a long time, verse 27, he wears no clothes. In our culture, no clothes almost always symbolizes um, sensuality. But in that day, the the symbolism of this nakedness is shame. This, This man is like a wild animal. He's been dehumanized by the oppressive power of these spirits, becoming less and less human, more and more animal-like, wearing no clothes. And Luke tells us he lives in the tombs. A Jewish reader would have picked up on the fact that here's an unclean Gentile possessed by unclean spirits who's living in the unclean graves of men. It's a sad situation. This man is a picture of death living among the dead. He's an outcast who's been completely separated and isolated from society. And he comes immediately and confronts Jesus. You might say again, why so much gory detail about this man? Well, again, it's against the darkest of backdrops that Christ's glory and his grace will shine the brightest. It's often the most broken and hopeless cases that display the the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. There's a raw intensity to this confrontation. Luke tells us that when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice. So two times he cries out, he says with a loud voice. There's emphasis here that this man is coming with some intensity against Jesus and he falls down at Jesus' feet. But as we'll see, this is not an act of worship. This man is not showing humility and and, and worship for Christ. This is rather abject fear. The demons are overcome with terror because they actually know who Jesus really is. The statement that that this man utters, that the demons speak through him, what have you to do with me? could really be understood as, why are you picking on me? What is there between us? What have I done to you? Please leave me alone. That's what this man cries out with a loud voice at the feet of Jesus. And notice how he addresses him. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? The Most High is a title for God. But it's a title that wasn't very often used by the Jews. This was a title that Gentiles, that other nations, often used to refer to the God of Israel. It was the way that outsiders talked about Yahweh. I mean, think about it. The Gentiles believed in many gods. They worshiped many gods, but they had witnessed the truth throughout history that Israel worshiped the most high God, the God over all the other gods, the God who had defeated the gods of Egypt. And Jesus is his son. Jesus is the son of the most high God, his anointed. This is a royal title, which means that that Jesus bears all the authority and power of his Father. And that's why they are in such big trouble. Remember the question that the disciples asked in the boat? Who then is this? The demons know the answer. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And like a sniveling dog, when it knows that, that its superior is standing over it, they cower on the ground at his feet. And they cry out, I beg of you. Do not torment me, there at the end of verse 28. And the the Greek verb here implies this is an ongoing request. They're asking and begging over and over again. They keep saying, do not torment me. Matthew's account gives this little insight, that this man says, have you come to torment us before the time? They're not only afraid because of who Jesus is, but they also know what Jesus has the power to do. There is a coming judgment when all of God's enemies will be crushed. Matthew 25, 41 says, The eternal fire of hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And these demons knew that their time was coming. They knew the clock was ticking, but they also knew today is not that day. And they're reminding Jesus, saying, hey, you're ahead of schedule. Don't torment us before the time. Luke tells us in verse 29 and explains that Jesus had just commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time, it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus has commanded the, the demon to come out, and Luke here contrasts what Jesus is doing with what many men had tried to do and failed in the past. Many people had tried to conquer this man and subdue the spiritual powers that were completely wrecking his life. They had put him under guard. They had bound him with chains and shackles, but human efforts could not restrain or restore this man. They failed, but Jesus simply speaks a word of deliverance. He speaks to the wind and the waves, peace be still, and the storm is instantly calm. And he speaks a command to these unclean spirits, and they do not fight. They simply beg for mercy. Jesus asks the man his name, and the demons answer, Legion. A legion is a a military unit in the Roman army that was usually full of about 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 soldiers. And the demon says, Legion. Jesus has cast out demons before. We've seen it even in the Gospel of Luke. But this time is different. This is different. This isn't a case of a man with a split personality who sort of wrestles with this demonic presence that that impacts his life. This individual has been completely overrun, and these unclean spirits were wreaking havoc on his body, soul, and mind. There's complete domination here. It's hard to imagine these demonic forces having a stronger foothold in someone's life, but Jesus drives them away with a word, and they simply beg for mercy. Look in verse 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The demons are simply angels. They're fallen angels. God created the angels holy in the beginning, but there was a number of them that followed Satan when he rebelled. And while some of the demons roam free in this world, Scripture appears to indicate that there's some demons that are already confined. In the little letter of Jude, in the sixth verse, it says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Later, Revelation speaks of a bottomless pit, that Satan will be actually confined to for a 1,000 years. And these demons know that that exists, and, and they don't want to be locked up like the others, not yet. And so once again, in verse 32, Luke uses the word begging to describe what they're doing. They begged, verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Four different times Luke uses the word beg in this passage. He also uses the word asking. He also uses the the phrase that Jesus grants permission. All of this is meant to reinforce the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And and these demons ask permission. They beg him, please, we'll obey you. We will depart from this man. We'll leave him alone. But please don't send us to the abyss. Can we go into the pigs instead? Now, a herd of pigs is not something you would find in Jewish territory. The Jews saw the pigs as unclean. They were not to eat them or touch them or have any interactions with them. But the Gentiles had no issues with pigs. And so, ironically, this sort of fits the story. The, the shoe fits, if you would say it that way, that the unclean spirits want to enter into these unclean animals. And Jesus, as the one with all authority, grants them permission, which results in a chaotic moment. In verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Why does Jesus allow this? I'm guessing many of you have heard this story. You've read this story. Maybe if it's at night with the lamp on, right? But why does Jesus do this? Why doesn't Jesus send these demons into the abyss? They deserve it. Does Jesus have mercy on the demons? Does Jesus have something against pigs? Why does he do this to the herd of swine? Does he have a problem with the herdsmen? Is this some sort of you know like economic punishment for these, these farmers who are raising pigs? I, I don't think any of those are the reasons. This is an object lesson. This is an object lesson. How else would those who are watching be able to Understand the magnitude of the miracle that Jesus has just performed. Because you can't see the spiritual realm, but they can see pigs. Mark's gospel tells us there's about 2,000 pigs in this herd. That would have been a powerful exclamation point on the end of this uh, situation. So the disciples and the herdsmen got a sense as they watched these pigs rush down these steep cliffs into the water, they got a sense of the scale and the scope of what it is Jesus has just done. This is visible proof of an invisible miracle. I said at the beginning, we want to look at these different responses to the authority of Jesus and we find that the demons are filled with a hateful fear of Jesus. They're terrified of him. Nevertheless, they must obey his word. There's a second response to the authority of Jesus. We see that in verses 34 through 37. And that's the unbelieving fear of the local people. The unbelieving fear of the people. Look in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The guys that were uh, at work taking care of the pigs that day this was not a normal day at the office. When they saw everything that had just happened, they flee. This is, this is an act of fear as they run away. And they tell everybody about it. Verse 35 says, Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. When the local people come to confirm this crazy story that the herdsmen had told them, to verify what had happened, they see this man. This is a man they've tried to help in the past. This is a man that they've tried to contain and control in the past. They had put him under guard. They had bound him with shackles and chains They know that this is the guy that used to live among the tombs, these caves in the side of the hill. They used to run around naked all day long. Now they see him sitting with Jesus, and he's been healed. But the unclean spirits had twisted and distorted. Jesus has restored. His dignity has been restored. He's wearing clothes again. His sanity has been restored. Luke says he's in his right mind. And he's been socially and relationally restored. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's no longer isolated and alone. He's in a relationship with his Savior, his master. The deliverance and restoration of this man is total. And it's a powerful testimony to us that nobody is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of the power and the grace of Jesus. If Jesus can redeem and restore this man, Is there anything that's too hard for him? Is there anyone that's too unclean to be welcomed by Jesus, to be restored by Jesus? Jesus rescues, he redeems, he restores. This is his mission. This is why he came. And the people saw that Jesus is able to do that with the power of his word, able to do something that they could never have done. But how do they feel about this? Well, they see the man that they could not master, They see the carcasses of the pigs washing up on the shore. And the local people recognize in that moment, just like the disciples a few hours earlier in the boat, that this man is not like us. He is not like them. This man is dangerously holy for a sinful people. So, verse 35 tells us they are afraid. They're afraid. But like the demons, this is not a godly fear. This is not the fear of faith. Jesus possesses this otherworldly power, and, and he represents to the demons and to these local people a spiritual invasion. His presence has provoked a battle. It's brought conflict, and they don't want their backyard to be a battlefield. They would prefer the safety of normal. They would prefer the way that things used to be, rather than the unpredictable disruption that that Jesus is bringing when he steps into their lands. I mean, think about it. Jesus just put a big dent in the local economy. He seems to be bringing out all the crazies. So now it's their turn to do the begging. Once again, we see this language in verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Sadly, this fear is an expression of their unbelief. They don't receive Jesus. They send him away. And then comes some of the saddest words that I think we could read. At the end of verse 37, it says, so, you know what Jesus did? He got into the boat and returned. Jesus gave them exactly what they wished for, a return to normal, A Christless status quo. If that's what they want, then his business there is done. He steps back into the boat to go across the lake again. The demons are filled with a a hateful fear of Jesus. The local people are filled with this unbelieving fear. They they fear the disruption and, and and, and the chaos that they fear Jesus might bring to their comfortable lives. But what about the man that Jesus had redeemed? What's his response to the authority of Jesus? This is the third response we see. It's in verse 38 through 39. And it's the grateful fear of the redeemed. The grateful fear of a man who has experienced the power and the grace of Jesus. One more time we find someone begging. The man, verse 38, from whom the demons had gone, you know what he asked for? He begged that he might be with him. He wants to be with Jesus. The demons ask if it's okay if they leave. The people of the region ask if Jesus can leave. But the man who's been healed says, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. If this is who you are, if this is the scope of your power, if this is the measure of your goodness, if this is your mission that you're invading the kingdom of darkness to conquer and redeem, if you are the Son of the Most High, then I want to be where you are. I want to be with you. I want to be on your side. This man had experienced spiritual power for many years, he was no stranger to an otherworldly authority. Spiritual authority, even. But what he had experienced before this day was a corrupting kind of a power, a destructive kind of power, a power that dehumanized him and enslaved him. But the power and authority of Jesus is different. The power of Jesus restores. The power of Jesus had made him whole, and now he is no longer in bondage. Now he is free. So this man is also filled with fear, This is a fear response, but it's not the hateful fear of the demons. And it's not the unbelieving fear of the people. It's the grateful fear of faith. It's the awe of a man who has experienced God's grace. It's the wonder of a man who has seen the divine power of Jesus wielded on his behalf to bring about Redemption and salvation, and this kind of a fear produces love, not loathing. This kind of fear moves him towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. However, Jesus answers his request by saying no. At the end of verse 38, it says, But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says no to this response of faith, this beautiful and noble response, the the kind of thing that you would think Jesus wants all of us to follow his example. Why does Jesus send him away? Well, again, remember, this man is a Gentile. And Jesus' mission at this moment is very Jewish. He's going to be ministering in the temple very soon. And the presence of a Gentile in his traveling band, that would have hindered his mission. However, Jesus has a job for him to do. Jesus often told people in, in the Jewish regions, he often told people to keep quiet about the miracles he performed. In fact, he even told other demons to be silent and shut up when they're announcing, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see, in Israel, there was a danger of the wrong kind of messianic fervor, uh, the wrong kind of excitement getting stirred up. The Jewish people were like dry tinder. They were just waiting for a spark of revolution because they really wanted to drive out the Roman Empire. But Jesus hadn't come to bring... A political kind of salvation. So he often, in Jewish regions, would keep his miracles private while he would make his message public. He made his message, his teaching, very public. The miracles he often kept under wraps. But in the Gentile regions, it's different. There's no danger of messianic fervor. The, the, the people in the Decapolis, the, the Hellenized uh, Greek culture residents of that region, they weren't waiting with bated breath for a Messiah to drive out the Romans. So Jesus tells this man, hey, go tell everyone. Go tell everyone. Let the miracle and the message spread far and wide because the Gentiles need to know that the gospel is for them too. It's not just for the Jews. In a sense, Jesus is saying, listen, you can't be with me physically just yet. You can't join me in my travels, but you can join me in my mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. You can be with me in that sense. You can participate and do what I'm doing, which is telling everyone about what God is accomplishing by his power. Look at the message he particularly tells this man to proclaim. Verse 39, he says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Isn't that exactly what salvation is? Salvation is not what we have done for ourselves. It's definitely not something that we have done for other people. I can't save myself. I can't save another soul. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Salvation is God's gift to people in need. Salvation is God's power exercised on behalf of weak and needy people. Salvation is God's provision for those that are spiritually bankrupt. It is God's cleansing for those that are morally defiled and impure. It is God breathing life into those that are spiritually dead. He says, go tell everyone what God has done for you. But notice what the man does. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. And there's no tension here. The man didn't get his marching orders wrong. He didn't get the message mixed up because Jesus is the son of the most high God. What Jesus does, God does. And what God does, he does through Jesus. In fact, even Jesus' name, remember what it means? Yeshua means the Lord saves The demons confessed that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God with a hateful kind of fear. But this man gladly testifies to the divine power and the goodness of Jesus with a grateful fear. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. His fear leads to obedience and to praise as he testifies to Christ. I can't help but wonder if perhaps years later, when the apostles started spreading out and the church started growing and the gospel went outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, if it was this man's testimony that was tilling up the soil to be ready for that gospel that would later be proclaimed as the disciples took the gospel and fulfilled the Great Commission. You know, this is really a riveting story. It's fascinating. And it's a story that's meant to strengthen our faith. There's implications for us here today. And I want to just draw out three brief points in conclusion. The first is this number one, the rescued soul knows who Jesus is. That's undeniably clear from this text. The rescued soul knows who Jesus is. And there is no salvation apart from the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's required. John chapter 20, verse 30. The Apostle John, who witnessed this event, would later write this that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Did you catch that? We are called to believe a propositional truth that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And by believing in that truth, as we believe in who Jesus is and we trust in what he accomplishes, we have life in his name. The rescued soul knows who Jesus is. No amount of human effort can rid yourself of the chains of spiritual bondage. And this story shows us that no one is too far gone, no one is too unclean, too damaged. I don't know everyone in the room today, but listen, those who believe, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God can have life in his name. I have to ask if you have experienced the freedom that can only come through faith in Christ, if you've experienced the restoration and the the wholeness that comes from being brought into a a right relationship with God trusting in Jesus Christ and his power to redeem you. The rescued soul knows who Jesus is. But secondly, the rescued soul longs to be with Jesus. That's something we ought to contemplate today, that the rescued soul, the one who's experienced the grace of Christ, will long to be with him. Again, we've seen in this story a stark contrast between all these different responses to Jesus. Some people want Jesus to leave, but this man wants to go with him. I have to ask, what is your attitude towards Jesus? Some of you are a little bit standoffish. Some of you want to hold Jesus at arm's length. Perhaps you fear exposure. If I get too close to Jesus, he's going to turn the lights on and reveal who I really am and And what's actually going in in my life. Perhaps you fear, like the local people, disruption to the status quo. If I get too close to Jesus, he might want me to change. He might take certain things away. He might call me to obey him in ways that I'm not ready to. Some people don't want that kind of disruption. They want to see Jesus at a safe distance. They're afraid that if Jesus comes up close and personal, if Jesus steps into your kitchen, he might start messing around with things that That you would rather leave undisturbed. That's the kind of fear of the people in that region. It's not the fear of faith. Are you afraid that Jesus might interfere with your plans for your life? Are you afraid Jesus might interfere with your career plans, with your retirement plans, with your relationships? Are you afraid that Jesus might meddle with your money? That he might demand to be sovereign over the way you spend your time? That heaven forbid, Jesus might want you to join the church and become a member and be accountable and get involved? No, 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 no. That's way too much. Jesus, I'd like to see you at a safe distance. What a tragedy that today you could hear the good news of who Jesus is. And that some of you may perhaps want nothing to do with Jesus. But in contrast, the rescued soul longs to be with Jesus. We see that with this man. He begged Jesus, I want to be with you. And he's not the only one. We see the same response that we saw a few weeks ago with the woman who came and sought Jesus out when he was having dinner with the Pharisee and she's weeping and she's so close to him that her tears are falling on his feet. She wanted to be near to her Savior. We see it later with Peter. After the resurrection, Peter's out in the boat fishing, and he sees Jesus on the shore, the resurrected Christ. And as soon as he sees a Savior, he throws himself into the water and immediately begins swimming for shore. That's the kind of heart of the person who knows what it is that Christ has done for them. The Apostle Paul would later say that his greatest desire is to depart and be with Christ, because that would be far better. There's a lot of good things in life. There's many blessings we enjoy here, good gifts from God that we should rightly enjoy and give thanks for, but nothing compares with Christ Himself. The rescued soul longs to be with Jesus. Do you long to be with Jesus? Ask yourself that question What might change in your life if there was a growing desire? to be with him, to draw near to him, to know him, to see him more clearly. This is a true sign of having experienced Jesus' saving power. The rescued soul longs to be with Jesus. But a third and final implication, the rescued soul not only knows who Jesus is and longs to be with him, but finally the rescued soul lives to speak of Jesus. Like this man, There is much that God has done for us. We too have experienced a spiritual rescue from the domain of darkness. We may have never experienced the kind of demonic oppression that this man did. But nevertheless, Colossians 1.13 says this about every believer. It says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The book of Ephesians describes those who don't know Christ as doing the will of Satan, that that we are slaves in his kingdom. But those who believe in Christ have been rescued and delivered from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness is something only Jesus can rescue you from. And Jesus can bring that deliverance today. Get it taken care of today, Amen. Go cry out to Jesus Christ and ask Him to rescue you. Amen. You can't do to I know everybody. Brother, what you need today is to know Jesus Christ. I don't to do wrong. I promise. I'm not a threat. Hey, we're glad. Listen, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Hey, I think Steve would love to have a conversation with you, buddy. You're okay. It's okay. It's okay. That's okay. Hey, listen. Listen, we'd love to talk with you more. It's okay. Hey, it is okay. Hey, and listen, everybody who's here today, we have a number of guys that are going to have a conversation with this man. He needed to hear this text today, didn't he? And we do too. Listen, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and a lot of stuff going on in hearts. In this man's heart, maybe some of our hearts. Every man and woman and child's greatest need is to be rescued from the domain of darkness. Satan hates that. He really hates the fact that Jesus is coming in and plundering his kingdom, taking people out by force. And Jesus doesn't ask Satan permission, he doesn't negotiate. He comes and takes exactly what he wants. He takes the ones he loves, and he redeems them by his grace. And friends, if you're a Christian today, that's your experience. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's your experience, Christian. We too have experienced a restoration Sin is what fragments our minds and and dehumanizes us and makes us less than what God created us to be. But when you come to Christ and place your faith in him, he makes you whole, he restores you, he makes you more and more into the image of Christ. Romans 8 says God's sovereign plan is that he is predestined to conform us to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 4 says that as we gaze upon Christ, that we are changed into his very image little by little from one degree of glory to another. There's a spiritual restoration that Christ has brought about in our lives, and he's not done yet. He's still at work in us, making us more and more into who he wants us to be. And the rescued soul, the one who knows who Jesus is and the one who longs to be with Jesus will spend his remaining time on earth testifying to the goodness and the grace of God's salvation in Christ. There's people who need to hear this. And you know who's going to tell them? You are. Go and tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. You see, Jesus not only sent this man, he sends us too. He commissions us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all the nations. And he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And with that authority, I now send you. Go tell them how much God has done for you. In these three responses to the authority of Christ, we find the power of Jesus brings spiritual rescue and restoration. It's his authoritative word. It's his gospel. The son of the most high God is the one who sets us free. May we look to him in faith. May we draw near to him in love. And may we joyfully tell the world how much Jesus has done for us. God, I want to pause and pray for this man who was with us this morning who is troubled. Lord, we don't know what's going on in his heart, but you do. And there's really not much we can give to him, but we can tell him what it is that you are able to do for sinners. God, I pray that you would bring freedom, that you would bring life to this man, that he would hear in this story good news that Jesus is able to save and to restore i pray that he would look to you in faith please give the men wisdom as they share this good news with him lord i pray for every soul that's still sitting in this room i pray god that we would look to jesus this morning that we would have that grateful fear of the man who's been redeemed that we would look on you with awe and wonder that you came to rescue us from the domain of darkness You come to set us free. You come to make us whole. Lord, forgive us for keeping you at arm's length. Forgive us for looking at other things in this world and and failing to be gripped with the wonderful fear of God. Lord, may we all look to Christ today, believe in him, the power of his name. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to glorify yourself by redeeming people, rescuing them, and building your kingdom. We eagerly look forward to that day when we will be able to be with you face to face, to see the scars in your hands and your side and to express our love for you, the one who loved us so much, amen.